0: and you may be seated let's turn back to the book of Titus chapter 2 and I'm actually going to read the entirety of the chapter which is the text from this morning and then the text for this afternoon because they go together and I want to remind you of what we what we heard this morning as we come to to the text for this afternoon so, hear the word of God, Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober minded, dignified, self controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, again we thank you for your Word, your Word read, your Word heard. This itself is a means of grace. And Father, we pray that you would make application of the Word by your Spirit to our hearts To bear witness in our living. And now we come to the preaching of your word. Grant the strength and unction of the Holy Spirit to your servant to preach this soon after having just preached your word. But also, Lord, to the hearers uh, who could experience moments of weariness coming back so quickly at this time. Father, let the anointing of your Holy Spirit extend to the the ears of those who are here, that they would hear what your Spirit is saying to the church and to them. Lord, open their ears, but grant strength in the unction of your Holy Spirit uh, to the preaching of the gospel uh, to your servant, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I mentioned that in the Bible we find what's often called the indicative and the imperative. Now you've got to understand a little grammar to know what those things mean. But to summarize what we mean by the indicative is what the Bible declares as an indicative to be true about us who we are. And an imperative then is a command that follows. In other words, this is who you are, now be who you are. And oftentimes what we find in Paul's epistles is the first half or so of the epistle will be predominantly the indicative doctrinal content, who we are in Christ Jesus, and then he makes a switch and a turn, and he moves to what is application in terms of how we should live. In this case, we find it in the inverted order in this chapter. He begins with the exhortations that we heard this morning. And then he ends with the ground of those exhortations and the power. Where's the source of power to be obedient? Oftentimes what we hear in sermons when we come to the preaching of the law or to preaching in the New Testament exhortations, which are the law of God because they're commandments. Sometimes we're left just simply feeling guilty. We, we hear these, we realize I've fallen short of that, and I don't know whether I can do any better. And we can feel beaten down by exhortations and, 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 and by law. Of course, some people's remedy is, well, then we, don't, we won't preach the law. We'll just preach the gospel. But the, God, the Bible gives us both the indicative and the imperative. It gives us the gospel and it gives us the law. And so it's important. That's why this is really a two-part sermon. Part A was real long. Part 2 won't be as long. But part 2 of this really gives us the underpinning in the gospel that we need to be faithful to these exhortations. And what I want to do is I want to put two propositions before you. The first proposition is this. The ground and the power... For our obedience to the commands of the Word of God is rooted and grounded in a past event. That's the first principle. The ground and the power, our power to be obedient to the commandments of God, is rooted and grounded in a past event. In fact, the past event of all past events. And the second proposition I'll put forth before you is that the ground and the power for our obedience to walk in the Word of God, to obey the commandments of God, is rooted and grounded in an event yet future in redemptive history. So it's grounded in an event in the past. It's grounded in an event in the future. And I don't mind calling it redemptive history, even though the future event hasn't taken place. Because it's written in the decree of God from all of eternity. And we're going to see that both of these are found in this text. Let's look at the text. and you'll. For the grace of God, verse 11, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's... That's the event in history in the past. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And if you move down to verse 14, we read, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That event in history is the ground and the source of power for you to walk in obedience to God's commands is the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in his first advent. And in particular, it's in his cross and in his resurrection from the dead. That event in church history, in redemptive history, in the history of the world, that historic event is the historic event of all historical events. And that is your source for strength. Now, when we think about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection, we easily understand how that is a ground for our justification. That's what we think of, and it's true. I mean, why, why will I at the end of the age, why will you at the end of the age st- stand before the throne of God and God will declare to you, you are righteous, You're righteous. Enter in. Why will he declare that? On what ground will he declare that? Because the Lord Jesus Christ took the penalty and the curse that you deserve in your place. He died in your place. And his righteousness is imputed to you. And you'll stand before the throne dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's our justification. It is by grace. It is not by works. There's no works to it whatsoever. We don't add to it. We don't subtract from it. It is all by grace through faith. That's the ground of our justification. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning from this text, it's also the ground for your sanctification. Past event. Because something of great mystery, something greatly mysterious Took place. The Bible teaches us this. I can't explain it. I just can see the fruit and the result of it in my life and in your lives. The Bible says you were crucified with Christ. You were crucified with Christ. This is what the Bible teaches. You were crucified with Christ. Now, how is that the case when you didn't come to live until long after His crucifixion? I don't know. I just know it's true. Your baptism, your baptism is a a, a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, but it's a sign and seal of your union with Christ in what His death, His burial and in his resurrection. And no, Romans 6 is not talking about the mode of baptism. It's not talking about how it is that we baptize. I know our Baptist brothers and sisters will point to that and say, See, it's immersion. Well, I can show you where it's not immersion there. But anyway, they will tell you that. No, the point is, our baptism is a pointer to the fact that we were in Christ Jesus when he was crucified. You need to recognize that. Your old man was nailed to the cross when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and you were raised to newness of life. There's a a doctrine that, that I find a lot of people in our circles have never really heard about. It's a doctrine of sanctification. Typically, we think about sanctification, we think of progressive sanctification. That is, that the Spirit of God is at work in us and throughout our lives we are more and more and more being conformed to the image of the Son by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And he uses the means of grace to this end. He uses suffering in our life, all kinds of things. He uses to sanctify us progressively. And that that progressive sanctification is never complete or entire in this life. All of that is true. But there's another aspect of sanctification that's often ignored. It's called, in theology, definitive sanctification. Are you familiar with that term? You may be, you may not be. I think the term was coined by John Murray. He certainly probably wrote the most about it. This is very important to understand. What Murray says in definitive sanctification, it's not progressive at all. Progressive sanctification takes place, but this is something entirely different. And it's not the same as justification either. Definitive sanctification, the moment you are regenerated, the power and dominion that sin has over you is broken. You will no longer be a slave to sin From the moment you are regenerated, from your conversion, you are no longer a slave to sin because its bonds are broken. Why? Because in the history of salvation, what we call the historius salutis, are you familiar with that term? The history of salvation, the mighty saving events that take place in history, focusing in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, his resurrection, his ascension, His coming again in the clouds of glory. This is the history of redemption that in the historius Salutis, in the history of salvation, in time when the Lord Jesus Christ was being crucified in some way we can't comprehend. Even though you didn't exist, you were in Christ Jesus when He was crucified, buried, and you were raised from the dead. And this is when, when Christ's name is put upon you in baptism, this is what is signified and sealed. It's that power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that breaks the dominion of sin in you. And when you're regenerated, the Spirit of God comes and dwells in you. Now, what we sometimes, when we hear that, we think, well, I know that's true, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> Anybody ever feel like you sometimes stumble back under sin's dominion? We do. There are times in our lives where we drift. There are times in our lives where we do not struggle with temptation as we ought or with indwelling sin. There are times when we're far too easily seduced by the enemy. And sometimes we find ourselves falling so easily we feel like we have. Again, but you haven't if you're in Christ Jesus. Before you're regenerate, you can only sin. Now, some people don't understand that because they know that unbelievers sometimes do good things, they do. They're unbelievers that are faithful to their spouses. They're unbelievers that love their children. They're unbelievers that go to work every day and work hard and bring home a paycheck. And they're, they're unbelievers who are phila- you know, in philanthropy and they, they give to charitable things because they care and they want to help humanity. These are all good things. Those are not sin. Yes, they are all sin. Why? Because they're not done from the motivation to glorify God. They don't qualify as good works. You cannot please God as a sinner. And that's what you are before you're regenerate. But once you're regenerated, there's a new principle that's at work in you. Why? Because the old man is crucified. And you've been raised to newness of life. And what before was abhorrent to you before you are a Christian... Because your heart's at enmity with God is beautiful to you. Now, the issue is, is our obedience is never imperfection. But the obedience is real. and it's grounded in that past event. And the Historia salutus, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and our mystical union with him that's even there in the cross in a way we can't understand, that becomes ours in reality in our lives the moment we're regenerated. And so the power to obedience rests in that past act and the realities that flow from that historic event the cross, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and your union with Him. And that's how we advance in sanctification. And then it becomes progressive. And I don't know about you, but my walk sometimes is two steps forward, one step back. <laughs> one step forward, two steps back. Two steps forward, one step back. There is progression. <clears throat> but the dominion of sin... Is broken. And there's a genuine love for Christ. I heard R.C. Sproul preach one time on assurance. Uh, years ago, we had several Reformed Presbyterian churches in our area that would, on Fifth Sundays, we would all come together for a joint evening service. We always met at Abingdon Presbyterian Church. You guys know where that is because it was a, sort of a central location. They had a good facility that was there. And uh, and R.C. came, he was in town, he came and preached that night. And I can remember, and it was a little bit informal, he did things he probably wouldn't do in a regular, ordinary worship service. And uh, he was trying to illustrate assurance, and that doubt is real, but assurance is real as well, and our struggles with assurance. And he asked a young man to stand up on on the front row. And he says, do you love Jesus Christ with everything that is within you, heart, soul, mind, and strength? And the young man, deer in the headlights, you know, kind of look on his face being caught like this. He says, uh-huh. <laughs> and the RC starts scratching his head. He says, maybe I better phrase that question again. Do you love Jesus Christ perfectly with everything that is within you, heart, soul, mind, and strength? It just, uh <laughs> And then he asked him, he said, well, where do you go to the church? He said, such and such Methodist church in our <laughs> you know, To the rest of the congregation that's there. <clears throat> but then what he did was when the young men finally admitted, no, I don't love Jesus perfectly. He brought it down. Do you love Jesus? Da, 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 da. But, but you know, not quite to perfection. And the, he says, finally, he comes and says, do you love Jesus at all? That's it. When you compare it to the perfection of loving Jesus, the fact that you love Jesus, really love Jesus, is a demonstration that definitive sanctification has taken place in you, that you're united with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and the dominion of sin is broken in you. And when you know that, and when you know that you were crucified with Christ, then in the time of temptation, because of the Spirit of God that dwells in you, there is strength to say yes to God and no to the enemy. It's rooted and grounded in that past event in history. And Murray, I think, rightly identifies that and calls it, Definitive sanctification. And it belongs to every single one of you who are in Christ Jesus. But the text also teaches about a future event. Let's look at it as we read. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think it's interesting here that he adds to what he said in the previous text where he speaks of God our Savior. Here he says, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a, this is a declaration of the divinity of the Son of the Lord Jesus Christ right here. He is God our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then immediately goes back into the past event, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all ungodliness and to purify for himself. You see that? It goes from the future event back to the past event to the fruit of these two events, which is the purification of a people for himself, his own possession. Your sanctification is rooted and grounded in these two historic events, one in the past and one in the future. And God is bringing about that fruit. A people people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, that's the fruit. That's what sanctification looks like. Zealous to be obedient to God. But it's rooted and grounded in a future event. And what is the future event? It's the second appearing of our Lord. The past event is the first appearing of our Lord. In particular, His cross and His resurrection. The second event, yet in the future, is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in consummation. And in consummation, when Jesus comes in the clouds of glory, at the end of this age, there will be no more temptation. There will be no more aching bones. There will be no more sickness. Pete won't have to get prayer requests and write them down so that he remembers them at his age in order to pray for all of the Issues that plague us in this life because we still live in a world that is still under the effect of the curse. The age is coming when that will be no more. And it's coming quickly. I know I may be sounding like some dispensational preacher that is going to teach you that the rapture of the church is right around the corner. And I figured out the key why. No. No. The Lord Jesus Christ's coming is going to be soon. It was soon when Paul wrote this epistle. And I want you to think about this. We we don't think in terms of eternity. How old is the earth? How old is the universe? Well, some say 6,000 years. Well, I don't think the genealogies are that... I don't think adding the genealogies really works. So let's stretch it a little bit. That that the universe is ten thousand years old, or even stretch it further. What if what if the universe is twenty or twenty five thousand years old? Which Francis Schaeffer thinks it might be twenty or twenty five thousand years old. Now all these, which I suspect that all of us here are young Earth folk in that. What is twenty five thousand years in light of eternity? It's a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. That's what it is. Okay, let's play devil's advocate. That is these secular scientists. What do they say? The universe is 4.5 billion years old. I think that's what they say, something like that. 4.55 5 billion years old. Let's play devil's advocate. Let's grant for a moment that they're correct, which they are not. We know that because they don't understand Genesis. Actually, they're suppressing it in unrighteousness. But let's suppose for a moment that they're right. What is 4.5 billion years in comparison to eternity? It's a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Or think of your own life. Three score in ten, and some are living on borrowed years beyond that already. And some of us are getting very, very close to the three score in ten. Some of you got a good ways to go but you'll blink your eye and you'll be there. Just ask any of those who are there or who are close to being three score and ten, which if you don't know what three score and ten is, it's 70 years. Ask any of us. It seems like yesterday that we thought it's going to be a long time before we were going to be three score and ten. This life is paper. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. Now, it's an important one, as are the six 10, 20, 25,000 years, however old the earth actually is. It's an important history. Why? Because it's in this history that the history of redemption is played out. And the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is redeeming a people for himself who will be with him for all eternity. But it's Here today, it's gone tomorrow in regard to eternity. And the thing is, we can't even think properly in these terms because God is not bound by time. Time is a creation of God. And we can't wrap our minds around what eternity is. We just know that time in history is brief and short. And if all of that is true, then we are right around the corner from the perusal and from the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I may be preaching to a bunch of post-millennialists. I don't know. And that's okay. I used to be one. Actually, when I read the Psalms sometimes, I think I might still be. But actually, my position is typically called the amillennial position. I don't care whether you're post mail, whether you're on mail, whether you're pre mail. I hope you're not dispensational pre mail. <clears throat> Although I got lots of family members that are, who love Jesus. And I used to be one of those too. It's short. The parousia is coming. Lord Jesus is going to come in the clouds of glory. In this world that we live in now, as we know it, is going to come to an end. This age is coming to an end. And the new age is coming. Yes, in the new heavens and the new earth, as we read about in the book of Revelation. But that's the age of consummation. That's the age that's coming. That's the age that's not yet but that's the age that's coming, and we live now in light of them. Like I said, I don't mind calling the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ an historic fact, even though it hasn't. Because God wrote it from all eternity in His decrees. And the new heavens and the new earth, guess what? All of the Remnants that are left of the curse from aching bones to sickness to temptation and sin to tears in our eyes will be gone forever. And we confirmed in that eschatological, to use another big word, means end times, Union and communion with God for all of eternity. And that age is as real as this one. And the church triumphant already has a taste of that, even though they don't have resurrected bodies yet. That awaits the parousia, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what is the power? In what power do you walk in obedience? Is by recognizing, I don't have a continuing city here. My citizenship is in the age to come. It's in heaven. Oh, how that changes our perspective on everything. How easy it is to be so earthy-minded, not in bad things, but so caught up in the things that are passing away instead of focusing on the things that are eternal. And when we focus on the things that are passing away, even if they're not evil things, we will find ourselves more easily succumbing to temptation to fall to evil things as well. We have to live in perspective of the age to come. This age is coming to an end quickly soon Jesus is coming in the clouds of glory I happen to think that it it may be even sooner by the way we count things because of how rapidly we've seen the collapse of culture in our day and we've seen the end of human wisdom and philosophy that has ended in that which is utterly irrational and without ground. And I don't see where else they've got to go. But if it's ten thousand years before Jesus comes back, if you post are right, or, or twenty-five thousand years, that's soon. That's soon. And so as we struggle in this life to walk in obedience, as we struggle with sickness and with suffering, it's a good reminder to us of the age to come. No more aching knees or hips. No more tears. No more worrying and fretting about an overreaching government. (laughs) Whether it be in adoption cases (laughs) or, or whether it be in restrictions about how we live our lives. This is all coming to an end. And the event that's at the center of history, which is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, it's like bookends of that glorious event in history, and the glorious event and the consummation of the end of history. And we live in between this. It's from these two events that the power the power to say yes to God in the exhortations that we've heard, whether you be an old man, a young man, a younger woman, a young man, or whether you be a bond in the text. And these are the things that we keep before us. A gospel. The good news, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that He's coming in the clouds of glory Consummation and pray, Maranatha. Pray quickly, come, Lord Jesus. Even if you're post mail, pray it anyway. Pray it, it's going to be so good. (laughs) We cannot even imagine. But let these truths empower your living now that we will be a purified people. His own possession, who are zealous for good works, as the text tells us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for we thank you for your law because it's good, it's perfect, it is for our good It is liberating to us because you've made it that way to be who you've created us to be. But oh, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for His cross and for His resurrection. And we thank you for the promise, a sure hope that you have your purposes beyond this age in the age to come And Father, remind us of these things often and purify us through these things to walk in obedience to You and to glorify Your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.